On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be chatting about George Floyd. It's a terrible story what's happening in Minneapolis and what has happened in Minneapolis and totally preventable for all kinds of reasons and unnecessary and wrong and tragic and wrong. Did I say wrong? We're going to be talking about space exploration because the SpaceX rocket is about to go off tomorrow. Do we still have an appetite? Do we still have a need to go to space? We'll discuss. And Lance Armstrong, is there a greater conundrum than Lance Armstrong, a guy who cheated to win, but by winning raised $500 million for cancer research? Is Lance Armstrong a hero or is he a villain? We will discuss that too. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. There has been a story that, uh, well, it's, it has been one of the stories, maybe the story, certainly in the States, the story around here. It has been a story for sure and one we should be paying attention to. And that is the story of George Floyd. I think you by you know what I'm talking about by now because you've seen the news, you've heard the news. It was this story about um, this guy who died, I was going to say at the hands of the police in Minneapolis, more at the knee of the police in Minneapolis. We'll get into the story in just a moment here, but um, we have to address this, don't we? I mean, we have to, there have been, let's put it this way. There have been black people, African-American people in the States who have died by police that have led to marches and riots and outcries. But in many of those cases, many of those cases, we are stuck not really knowing what happened. Usually there is no video of anything, usually. So what we end up with is there is one version of a story that says that the deceased person was a completely innocent victim who did nothing wrong and the police officer horribly overreacted and killed him or her for no apparent reason. And there's a second version of the story that says the deceased wasn't so innocent and the officer had reason to believe that he or she was threatened and needed to defend him or herself because something was happening that made them believe that they were at risk. And usually, often, most of the time, it's reasonable to assume or believe or think the truth might be somewhere in the middle. Trouble is, in these cases, and we've seen this over and over and over again, emotions run so hot that these situations become impossible to parse, impossible to find any nuance or some form of truth, because by the time something comes up in court, by the time evidence is presented, everyone on both sides has dug in their heels and made up their minds and nothing is going to change that. It doesn't matter what evidence comes out to either convict or acquit. It doesn't matter what would happen. Minds are made up. Nothing is changing. And truth is, we can't know the truth of these cases. Absolutely. And anyone who tells you that we can know the absolute truth about these cases is an activist who's not interested in the truth anyway, but is interested in pushing an agenda on either side, on either side. But then we get one of the cases, the odd case, we get one of these ones that happened this week in Minneapolis. And again, you know the story by now. George Floyd was a black man who passed, apparently passed a bad $20 bill at a store. He may or may not have known that it was counterfeit. Either way, he was arrested. The video shows that he didn't fight. And yet he ended up on the ground beside a police cruiser where for eight or nine minutes, an officer kneeled on his neck as Floyd said he couldn't breathe and eventually he died. 
And here is the difference between his case and a lot of the other ones. In this one, we have video of basically the whole thing. There is video of beforehand now that's come out from a, a security camera. There's video of the event itself. And unless these videos are doctored, and I've heard nobody to this point even suggest that somehow these videos are not real. Unless these videos are doctored, there seems to be no real room here for a lot of nuance. A man who wasn't fighting back, who was unarmed, who wasn't a threat at the moment, prone on the ground, who was outnumbered in the event that he decided to lurch up and try to do something. Um, and I mean, he had his handcuffs, he had his hands handcuffed behind his back. It would have made it difficult, not impossible, but it would have made it more difficult to do anything either way, was kneeled upon on his neck, even as he was asking for the officer to move his knee a bit so he could breathe. It's a, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing to have watched and had, had anyone stepped in to help him, I mean, if someone, if a bystander had decided to jump in, who knows what might've happened? Nothing good. I can assure you of that. If you, even if you had been a bystander who said, I'm going to go get the officer's knee off this guy, nothing good was going to happen. And here's where this story goes. Well, there's a lot of places where the story goes south. I mean, the story was going south in the beginning, but where this really gets bad now, or worse, worse, I guess, not bad, is that even with the evidence that the video has on, and it takes days and a full-blown riot in Minneapolis and a bunch of other cities to get the officer charged. And you get the sense that the officer would not have been charged had there not been riots, which is the worst possible outcome here. Because now the message is, if you want action, start torching police stations and we'll do something about this. That's, it, it, not, it should not have come to that. It's the worst possible situation. It, it's in a sense, it's like negotiating with hostage takers. You, you, you don't, you can't do it. You, you, sh there never should have been the delay in the first place. Right? Because you saw it. You've seen the video by now, right? You've seen this compelling video. Compelling enough that, let me say this, and I, I say this without any hesitation. If you had been involved in a scrap with somebody on the street, and you ended up on top of somebody with your knee on their neck, and that person died, and then that video, that cell phone video was taken to a police station afterwards, you would be charged. There's, uh, and then they would have said, we'll charge you because look, it's clear. And then we'll let the courts sort this out. But he wasn't charged. The cop wasn't charged. They fired the cops and they said, okay, we're going to look into it now, but they didn't do anything. And you end up with riots. How, how could police not see? How could the administrators and the prosecutors and everyone else not see the problem with that? We're going to take a break. We're going to come back because this, this is a, this is one of those stories that you say, you know, there are other cases where we may not know, we may not know who to believe. This one, man, it, it, this is such a troubling story. And let me stop here for one second and just make one thing abundantly clear. I am an, I am a supporter of the police. I have family that's police. If I had them on the show tonight, they would tell you that I back the police fully. And the, this family member is good cops. And anyone who dealt with them would tell you the same thing. And I've met their friends and I've met fellow officers and I don't believe it's acceptable for officers to be attacked because they are a symbol of law and order and peace, hopefully in our society. And if you attack them, essentially, 
in a way you're attacking society. And I don't think it's okay for officers to be coming home in body bags for the same reason. They are allowed to defend themselves when they have a legitimate cause for concern for their safety. It's why we give them pepper spray and monadnocks and guns. And, you know, it's not okay to attack the police. But if we take that position, we also can't say that it's okay for this symbol of society. If we're saying you can't attack a cop because they symbolize law and order in our society, you then can't have that symbol of law and order in our society acting in an unfair or cruel or malicious or or callous or whatever way. And this is why this case infuriates me and, and I trust and I hope it infuriates you. Because in this case, we do, unlike a lot of others, in this case, we do have a video. The other ones, we don't, I don't necessarily talk about them sometimes, but because so often there is such a gray area that we can't possibly know what happened. It's impossible. And diving into it becomes an impossible task to try and sort it out because again, everyone's got their mind made up. In this case, we have a video, we know what happened and we know when you watch it, how uncomfortable you are watching this. You can support the police as I do and still say that. It's acceptable. You're not dumping on cops by saying this was awful. And even the fact that the Minneapolis police department fired these four cops long before they were charged, but fired them was saying they did something wrong. And I bet you that the truth is 99% of police officers who look at this are upset by it. Because if you watch the entire thing, you realize it makes all cops look bad. You think the cops in Minneapolis want to be out there dealing with riots right now, especially when many of them un- are, maybe are in agreement, not an agreement, but understand why the anger is out there. And here's the thing, if this had been a split second decision, as we talked about earlier, of a suspect lurching toward a cop, even if it turned out later that the suspect was unarmed, and again, this is when you get into these gray areas and these difficult situations that we don't really know. You can't, in those situations, you can't put your mind, it's really hard to put your mind in the brain of a police officer who's got adrenaline going and who's got fear and whatever else, and someone lurches towards you and the policeman or policewoman responds, that's a split second decision. And I think when, when you have those kind of decisions in in those kind of circumstances, and then for the next number of months, you break this thing down millisecond by millisecond, that, that becomes really difficult. And in many, many, many cases, really unfair. This is not that this cop had ample time, more than ample time, an eternity basically to make the right, what looked like compassionate, humane decision. You had a guy on the ground who could says he couldn't breathe. You're beside a police cruiser. The, the, as I understand it, police protocol would be once you've got someone handcuffed and controlled, the safest place for them and for you is for them in the back of the cruiser. Why they didn't try and move him into the back of the cruiser and then close the door. I have no idea. I guess we'll find that out at some point, maybe. And I don't believe that this cop meant to kill this guy. I don't think he meant to kill George Floyd, but he did. And he did it because of what happened, of his actions. That it just, it's, it, it, how can we come to any conclusion other than in this particular case, they look so unnecessary. And yet he wasn't charged for days. The mayor of Minneapolis is, is calling out for, him to be charged and saying what I said a moment ago, if this was you or I caught on tape doing this, we would have been charged. 
and yet somehow I guess it seems like a lot of cases, um, if we charge a cop or criticize a cop, we, we feel like we're doing something wrong, maybe because we believe in law and order. And most of the time I would agree with you. And I would agree that complaining about the cops and whatever is totally unfair because their job is unlike other jobs and it's gratuitous and it's without merit and all the rest. Taking shots at them because they represent authority, it's wrong. But taking action or criticizing or charging cops who do horrible things, the tiny majority of cops that exist, like in any profession, there are bad people in any profession, bad apples. How... I, I don't see as a, as a huge supporter of the police, I don't see that as wrong. If there is someone who is not doing what is right or does something horrendous, there is a right and there is a wrong action. And it's not, that's just, that's not just okay. That's essential because that then removes the bad apple out of the bushel and makes, that makes all the other ones look ugly. The police by and large, you may agree, you may disagree. I fully believe the enormous majority of police are great are good people who are there for the right reason and are doing their very best to do the right thing. So, th I mean, thank goodness, finally, they charged one guy here. If only because now, look, you can he can have his day in court, and if there's some sort of defense against this, that's fine. That's the place for this thing to be sorted out. Have his day in court. Let him defend his actions. If there's an explanation, let him make it there. If he's innocent, fine. He'll be found not guilty. But this delay... When you want to talk about why there is this belief that there's a two-tiered system and why the system is racist and everything else, this delay is the thing that makes people believe that or further drills down that belief. That even when the evidence is right there, the system doesn't work for them. How do you possibly argue? How do you possibly argue with somebody who says, the system is not fair and maybe there's times when the system is racist. How, when you look at that, how do you, how do you, even if you don't by default believe that always, in this case, how do you argue that? How do you argue that? It's just, a, it's a horrible story. It's a horrible story that has so many things going wrong and so many people doing wrong things. And at the bottom of it is... I, did the, did the cop who has now been charged, did he do this because the man was black? We, I don't know. We can make assumptions and whatever. I don't know, but boy, oh boy, it's, it's, this does nothing to help in this. I mean, maybe it stirs a conversation further, but man, it's uh what a, what a, what a sad thing to happen and a, and a bad thing to happen. And yeah. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. If all goes well, tomorrow afternoon at I think it's 3.22 p.m., uh, SpaceX is going to launch its Falcon 9 rocket with two astronauts aboard from down in Florida. It is going to be the first time a private company, other than, so not a national government, launches people into orbit. It's also going to be the first time since 2011 that astronauts will be sent into space from U.S. soil. Now, if you are interested in this stuff, this is going to be a big, big, big deal. Some of you, maybe many of you will try to watch this on TV or online or wherever you can find it. What if you're not, let's say, let's call you a space nerd. What if you're not big into the space idea? Why should this matter? Should this matter? Let me bring in Dr. Ken McIsaac, who is with the Institute for Earth and Space Exploration at Western University. He joins me now. Dr. McIsaac, thanks for doing this today. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. This is uh, 
quite an opportunity. Well, why we are in 2020, uh, we landed on the moon in 1969. It's been a few years now. Why should this still matter? Why should space exploration still matter? Well, uh, it's a bit like asking why does, why does any scientific, uh, discovery matter? Uh, we never know exactly what we're going to find, which is part of the reason why we do it. Um, the the moon landings you mentioned in 1969, of course, can't be separated from uh, the Cold War. A lot of that was about, you know, getting there before the Soviets did and that kind of thing. Uh, but now I think I think our focus is more on on the discovery and and on uh, what we can find out there, and of course on the technologies that we can develop, and then we can bring those technologies down to Earth and use them in ways that uh, uh, that benefit everyone. Let me, uh, this is an answer that has, it's a question, pardon me, that has an impossible answer. There is no answer, I'm sure, no one answer. There's a million different answers. So go wherever you like with this. But what do we hope we would find? I mean, in, in the long term in, in space exploration, assuming we continue to do it, what are the kinds of things that we would hope that we would learn about or hope that we would discover? Are there things that are very obvious that are right in front of our face? Uh, well, <laughs> I, uh, unfortunately, the easy problems are all solved. Uh, okay. That, that's, that's always been the case. Uh, you know, people who, who work as researchers are always trying to find problems that, that haven't been solved yet. Uh, one of the things that I think is most interesting is, is the search for life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, you know, we know that life arose on Earth. Uh, we don't exactly know how. We have fairly good ideas, but I don't think uh, that that question has been settled. But we don't know if it's arisen anywhere else. Uh, probably has, but we don't know. Um, there's some exciting evidence, of course, that came from uh, Martian asteroid 20 years ago or so. Uh, but that was only pointing us in the right direction. <clears throat> we know that Mars had water at one time, uh, but we don't know if there was anything interesting living in it. Uh, so I think one of the most interesting sort of scientific discoveries to be made is, uh, uh, you know, what uh, what was the source of life? Is it is it common? Are we are we genuinely alone, or or uh, is this something that happens, you know, everywhere the environmental conditions are right? Is so, that is that the thing that would really capture the public's imagination? In, I mean, these days, if we could come with something that would say there was some sort of life somewhere, would that be the one thing that everyone would go, huh, okay, now I know why we're doing this? <laughs> uh, that's hard to say. Uh, I, I think it would get a lot of people very excited. Um, you know, it's, it's not, obviously, it's not something that, that we, can, we can make use of, but uh, understanding uh, the, 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 building blocks of, of life, I think, is a, is a scientific question that has has a lot of value and I think would get people excited. I mean, there of was course, a time and you meant, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, if if we ever find anybody out there who wants to talk to us, that would certainly get everybody excited. <laughs> that's the second problem. No, I mean, there was a time and, and, you know, we've both alluded to it now with the, with the moon landing and everything else. There was a time when everybody was fascinated by the space program and by astronauts and everything else. And I mean, I'm just trying to, th- I was trying to think off the top of my head of, you know, just some of the things that just showed that. I mean, the Houston Astros were named after the Astrodome, AstroTurf, the Jetsons cartoons, um, Space Mountain. I mean, all these things were, uh, 
were the spinoff of that fascination. Do you think people still have that fascination? Do you think it's just hiding in the background until we do something that just brings that back to the front? Well, I, I think that the, the interest is still there. One of the things we try to do at the Institute is, is outreach. We have a lot of programs to reach uh, school-aged kids and high school-aged kids. And, you know, space is one of the things that, that really lights them up. The, if you can say that, that this, whatever it is, this technology we're going to use uh, to get to space or to explore space, or we're going to, you know, if, if you tell them you're going to make a robot that, that drives through a tunnel, that sounds pretty cool. But if you tell them that the, the tunnel is on the moon, that sort of elevates the interest level uh, to, to another degree. So I, I think the interest is still there. Um, that that it, Part of it, of course, is that we, uh, we get attracted to what is novel. And in the beginning, uh, you know, those, uh, I recently read the book, The Right Stuff uh, by, yes. I think it's Tom Wolfe. Yeah. Um, that sort of starts at the, at the very beginning when, you know, we didn't really know that this was even possible and these guys were riding these rockets and might not come down. Um, now we know it's possible. People have lived for long periods of, of time in space. You know, we're using satellites to deliver our TV signals. Everybody uses GPS to find, you know, where the restaurant is. Uh, so the, the technology is, is part of our world now, which is probably part of why we, we sort of take it for granted. But I think people still have the interest in, uh, in, in the exploration. You know, I think you saw that with this movie, The Martian, that was out a few years ago, um, uh, which is, you know, an attempt to represent what a, what a real manned mission to Mars would look like. <laughs> I get the sense that space exploration is not necessarily a thrill, a second thing most of the time. It, it is a, a thing about patience. Uh, that's true. Um, I think we had uh, we had uh, Chris Hatfield, our uh, our Canadian astronaut slash YouTube star, was uh, taking advantage of some of those dopamine hits just a few years ago. Right. Um, you know, one of the most excite, at least from my perspective, one of the most exciting things that's happened uh, in the in the in the space exploration world in the last few years was the uh, recent Mars the, the Mars Curiosity landing. Uh, project. I, I, I don't know uh, how familiar you are with, with how that happened, but they, the problem is that you're firing a rocket at Mars and it's, it's going to hit Mars at a very high speed <laughs> and Mars has very little air. So you have to slow this thing down to put the rocket on the ground safely. And uh, they, they came up with, which is something that, you know, in my sort of expert engineering opinion was crazy. Uh, which is that they built this rocket-powered, they called it a rocket copter, that was going to hover in space and lower the lander to the surface, uh, sorry, hover in the air above the surface of Mars and lower the, the lander on a chain. You can find sort of YouTube videos of, of um, <laughs> you know, uh, an animation of how this was going to happen. Somebody at NASA or JPL signed off on this and said, yes, this is what we should do. And of course, it's a system that you can't test because the gravity is different. So the, the only way to test it is to fire your multi-billion dollar rocket at Mars and cross your fingers. And then wait and for then, what, three years till it gets there? Exactly. Wait several months till it gets there. But more than that, the entire landing sequence was going to be faster than the propagation time of the radio signals from Mars. 
So <laughs> the whole thing had to happen by, by you know, robotic control. There was no humans in the loop, and they weren't even going to know until it landed if it had worked. Now, that's something that you should be able to, get, to make exciting. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know, I, and I think that the people who were, who were watching it that day, uh, everybody was kind of walking around on, on tiptoes, you know, just, just hoping against hope that this crazy shot was going to work. And, of course, it did work. And it worked beautifully. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, maybe there's there's better marketing that they could have done. But uh, I, I think that's as exciting as just about anything else you can find on, on TV. There's a reason they call them rocket scientists. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what if we, what if, what do you think we've lost in recent years by the fact that NASA has essentially shuttered its program until now? I mean, it's, I know NASA still exists, but it's not the same that NASA was. The fact that we've stepped away from space travel for a number of years, what's gone? What, 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 have, what are we missing now that would have been there if we'd kept at it? Well, that, that's very hard to say. Um, you know, my, my own focus in my research work is on, is on robotic exploration and, and uh, autonomous sensors and, and that sort of thing. Um, the, the business of sending people to space, I think, should be separated from the business of sending robots and, and, and telescopes and so on to space. Um, and we've been doing that. Yes, that, that work has been ongoing. Uh, the... The, the environment is so dangerous. Uh, you know, <laughs> you, you have to bring all your air with you. You have to, you know, you have to make sure that you've got an environment that's, that's secure. You have to recycle all your water. I mean, it's a very difficult problem. Um, and, and the other thing that's very difficult is getting stuff off the ground. I mean, it's just, just the, the, to get a kilogram into orbit costs something like $10,000. I mean, it's, it's a crazy expense. Um, so some of these problems are just not easy to solve. You know, if you look at there, there used to be a chart you could see where it was, you know, the speed of human vehicles plotting it from, uh, from about 1900 or maybe even from the 1850s. And if you, if you follow the chart and sort of extrapolate, we should have warp drive by now. <laughs> <laughs> but with all those prices, with all that cost, and we only have a few seconds left here with all that cost that you allude to, and everybody knows how expensive this is. Is it worth it? Oh, I think it's worth it. Uh, I, you know, you can always ask about how resources should be distributed. Um, uh, but I, I think, it, you know, this is not a place where we want to skimp. I think continuing the, the scientific exploration, continuing to keep people excited in science and excited in technology, uh, that's how we're going to move forward. So uh, I, I absolutely, you know, I, I, not to say that we don't need to spend money in other places. Of course we do. But uh, I think this is one where we should we should keep on. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, it, hopefully it gets off tomorrow again, 3.20, 3.22, I think is when it's supposed to go. Uh, Dr. Ken McIsaac, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Have a good night. It's, uh, look, there's there in the back of our mind and in our psyche somewhere, I think there's still a fascination with rockets. I think there is. I mean, if you, if you were alive for the moon shots, I think you have to still have some part of you that still gets kind of cranked up by this. And if you weren't, you know, it's, it's such an unbelievable thing when you think about the science and you think about how difficult it is and the math. And I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And then you just keep your fingers crossed that all goes well. Cause I remember being in high school when the challenger went off. 
you just keep your fingers crossed. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lance Armstrong, there's a new documentary out about Lance Armstrong. You know who Lance Armstrong is, obviously, cyclist. Uh, guy who arguably at the time before everything went completely south for him and can sour for him, one of the most famous and one of the greatest athletes of all time. I don't think there's any dispute when you win seven Tour de France's and you've battled testicular cancer and you've come back from that. I think you earn a title to be in the discussion among the greatest athletes of all time. But there's also other parts of this story, and we know the other parts of this story. So there's this documentary out now, this two-part documentary about Lance Armstrong. And watching the first part the other day, boy, it's amazing how many similarities it seems to be that he has with Michael Jordan. Just a ruthless need to win at all costs. Get in his way, he'll go through you without a second thought. And we mentioned Michael Jordan because he was just the subject of another big 10-part documentary. Um, but Lance Armstrong really comes across as really an unsympathetic character, which is interesting since he had a chance here to rehabilitate his image a bit and seems to have said, ah, forget it. I don't care. But again, we get to the conundrum. We get to the question. He won those seven Tour de France's that were eventually stripped because he admitted to cheating. But at the same time, his foundation, remember those yellow live strong bracelets? You probably wore one once upon a time, have helped raise $500 million U.S., for cancer research. So is Lance Armstrong a hero or is he a villain? Sean Fitzgerald is the senior national writer for The Athletic. He joins us now. Sean, how are you tonight? Mr. Radley, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am doing very well, thank you. I watched the first half of this documentary yesterday and this I couldn't stop thinking about this question. This is one of the most conundrum-y situations forever or ever for me because you've got this guy who's a hero sort of he's not sympathetic as i say he's kind of an anti-hero but i can't decide if the ends justify the means and if we should look at lance armstrong as a guy that we applaud and say yeah you know what you did something wrong but you helped or do you say no the whole thing is a fraud well i mean in a way he's sort of a hyperbolic version of a lot of us that you know, are we all good? Are we all bad? Are we somewhere in between? Like, I know you're all good. I mean, you've certainly got the great haircut and the, the great radio voice yes. and the wonderful newspaper style. So you're all good. But for the rest of us, like, there's there's shades in between. There are parts of our personalities or things that we've done, mistakes that we've made, acts that we've committed, um, you know, whether it be cutting corners at work or cutting someone off at traffic. Like, we're not all good and we're not all bad. So what Lance Armstrong sort of is is, this vast sort of canvas of humanity on one side in the first part of his career. Um, he was tenacious, unbreakable, seven in a row, beating not just testicular cancer, but, you know, cancer had metastasized all over his body. And he comes back and he does this. And the book he wrote was Sally Jenkins, My Life on the Bike, detailed this. And he was relentless and ferocious. And then once, you know, the rumbling start, you see this other side, this, this sort of straight ahead, emotionless, ruthless person who, you know, can easily do away with friends and who, you know, does everything to sort of slide past the truth. And, and I mean, to your point earlier about Livestrong and the foundation from which he stepped down as the head in 2012, um, he has and was accused of using that as kind of a shield to deflect 
some of the criticism he was receiving for, you know, these drug allegations before they were finally proven. So he is a complicated figure. And you're, you know, when you mention, okay, mistakes we've made, and, and listen, everyone listening understands that wrong. exactly. Seven times to a national championship. Well, no, and, and that's, that's the, the tricky possible, part about anyway. this, right? No, but we've all got parking tickets. We may have a speeding ticket along the way. You know, there's things we've done, mistakes we've made. And I think everybody listening would say, oh man, there's a number of things on my list there that if I could go back and do it all over again, I really wish I could not do that. But they're not generally, for most of us anyway, the kind of things that absolutely define every single bit of who we are. They are a thing we did in a moment of weakness or in a moment of stupidity as opposed to a long-standing attempt to cheat or to get in front of other people. I mean, his becomes, and again, it's a complicated story because that cheating he, he probably doesn't have any of the $500 million that he raised without that cheating. It's all tied together. Well, no, absolutely not. Like he, he is different from a lot of us in that he had a singular focus. And, you know, part of the documentary, you know, early on attempts to lay some of the foundation and framing of this is that, you know, growing up, it might not have been super easy for me. Accused his stepfather of, I'm not going to use the word on radio this early in the evening, but of beating the crap out of him and really yeah. pushing him hard. Like it was that, you know, in some ways, a hard sort of Texas upbringing that, you know, molded him in fire and gave him this singular focus. Like, yeah, we're all complicated and, you know, we haven't quite gone that far, but we also don't all have that singular focus to beat the person next to you at almost any cost. Like, that's why I play beer league and not the NHL on top of many other reasons. But I just don't have that drive. Some people have that drive. Other people don't. And, and he certainly had it. And that just has continued to even now. And in the documentary, you know, he's, he's admitted that he's cheated, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of remorse in that because he was the best. Yeah. I, I, when I said leading into this, I was kind of surprised that he didn't take a little more of a softer, more conciliatory tone because this is his opportunity as we saw with Michael Jordan in the, the last dance that everyone just watched to try and reframe or at least position how you want to be positioned. And I, I get the sense Lance Armstrong just couldn't give a crap how you want to look at him right now, which I'm, I'm a little surprised by after everything that's happened, but that maybe yeah. that goes to, again, this exactly what you're describing, this unique kind of personality. Yeah, I mean, the, the director uh, sat down with him for eight interviews. So that's eight separate occasions where, you know, you form the, you know, not the narrative spine, but certainly a lot of the content through that. And, and that's where a lot of this comes from is those eight interviews. So there certainly was opportunity. And, you know, there certainly has been since the last sort of flare-up of Lance Armstrong news, time to reflect. And certainly he had availed himself or had the potential to avail himself of, really expensive public relations professionals to say, well, how do you want to frame this? But, you know, he doesn't really get emotional in the documentary about anything other than, um, you know, a, a trip to Germany to visit, you know, his, his longtime uh, second place finisher and, you know, colleague uh, Jan Ulrich. But it, it, it just isn't there. It's, it goes back to he had an insatiable need, not a want, a need to be the best. He became the best. He and, and this part is true, is that he came up in an era when, you know, it's like that, that line from Days of Thunder, the old NASCAR movie, if it, you know, rubbing is racing. Um, you know, back then, <laughs> it wouldn't have been that hard to find people who might have been, you know, doping. 
so, you know, it wasn't like he had better doping techniques than anybody else. So, you know, in that, he's probably long since justified in his mind that, you know, I'm not the only one, but I'm going to beat everybody else who is. I mentioned that this comes along right on the heels of the Jordan documentary and they have a lot of similarities in that way. And it gets me wondering, I mean, is it just these two guys because they're, they were at the very top of their game or are almost every professional athlete who gets to that level, who gets to play in the pros and be, and has dedicated their life to this. I mean, how many professional athletes should we expect that all of them have this? Most of them have this attitude. Is this rare? And what, especially now with access to social media and sort of the democratization of the platforms where more athletes have more access, we are getting more insight into this, that, you know, we are able to read about the athletes who had enormous physical gifts and maybe, you know, initially a real love for the sport. But after a while, it became a job and they just sort of went along because, you know, that's what they're expected to do. And, you know, they might have carved out a nice career or they might lament that, you know, if I hadn't lost the love of the game, what could have been? But at the same time, you still see the athletes who it's just this drive. It's just it's just something that not everybody has that it doesn't necessarily have to manifest itself into that sort of shark like gaze that you know you get from a Lance Armstrong. But, you know, one potential comparison that I'm speaking loosely about the focus here is you take a look at somebody like a Connor McDavid and the stories of neighbors in Newmarket where he grew up um, about how in the rain, you know, in the spring after the playoffs that he'd be out there on his rollerblades on this vast driveway, stick handling through obstacle courses that he'd set up before either one of his parents got home from work. So it's, it's not like there's a professional coach or an assistant coach or a parent or an older relative looking over him. It's just Connor McDavid saying, I want to get better. This is what I'm going to do. And at any age, let alone, you know, teen, preteen, that that's something different. That's something that separates people. And I think that that's, that's often what it takes to get to the very top of your field in professional sports. Yeah. Well, what you're describing is an obsession, basically. Uh, obsession could be a word. Yes. So, okay. So we get back to the question here. We've got the, we've got Lance Armstrong personality, you know, not the same as everybody else's desperate to win, willing to apparently do anything, uh, fight back from cancer cheat by the deaf. I mean, look, I, I know a lot of other people in cycling were cheating as well. There's, there's no question about that. He's not like the only guy who's ever done this. I mean, the, the tour de France for a while there, I mean, it became a, I won't say a running joke, but everybody knew what was going on. It was a chemistry class. It, it, it was like the hundred meters in the, yep. you know, the, the highest level of, of sprinting that we know for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We know that everybody or almost everybody is doing it. And if you're not doing it, we probably don't know about you because you're at the back of the pack, really. So yeah. still it's cheating. I mean, it, it is still cheating. So that does the fact, Sean, that everybody was doing it, make it less cheaty so that we can become more okay with then the money that follows and everything else or is cheating cheating it's a really interesting question i mean you can even bring in baseball right the absolutely the barry bonds and, and, yep. chase and barry bonds and, and and how do we embrace that because i mean it is still greatness and take a look at those numbers and you know they weren't the only ones but boy howdy did they ever excel in it how do you embrace that how do you feel and i think that that's a value judgment for fans um, whether or not everybody was doing it, you still like to 
you know, what you really, what I appreciate about sport is that it is two people competing for something and, and, you know, what makes it, what makes it a viable or valuable competition is that you have the belief or the understanding that, that athletes walk in with an equal opportunity to win. And it is their own hard work and their own skill and their own drive that will determine who comes out uh, ahead. You know, using pharmaceutical enhancements certainly tilts that and taints the, taints the whole proceeding. So, you know, for me, there will always be that asterisk for anybody who is caught cheating. But, you know, when you bring in the broader context, then you can have a fairly prolonged uh, discussion over adult beverages whenever the pandemic passes and we're allowed to do those things again. All right. So let me throw two different people. You're sitting, you're talking about having a, a, a beverage. You're sitting around a table and beside you on one side. I just have the club soda, obviously, but yes. Continue. Obviously, obviously. On one side of you is a cancer survivor who has benefited from the $500 million that has been raised by Livestrong towards research. On the other side of you is a competitor of Lance Armstrong's who didn't take stuff and as a result, millions and millions of dollars perhaps in winnings and in advertising money and everything else was lost because he decided that he was not willing to go along and break the rules and put the stuff in his body. Who are you looking at feeling worse for or feeling better for? I don't, I don't think feeling better for, for Lance Armstrong at this point. Um, factors into that conversation. I mean, I I remember in 2000, I think it came out, reading My Life on the Bike, his his autobiography at the time, you know, while he was still in sort of the, the early hero phase. And Lance Armstrong was inspirational. Like, what he did to that point, you couldn't help but root for him. Like, it was it was just incredible. The diagnosis, the getting through it, the, the getting back on the bike, the you know, really working to, to start making a name for himself, and especially as an American and in European cycling. Everything about it was just incredible. But almost everything since over the last 20 years has, you know, scrubbed away so much of that that I'm not sure it could ever be repaired. The, the, the fractured relationships with friends and former teammates, the constant denials, the, the vehement denials, and then finally, you know, the acknowledgement that was made remorseless and emotionless really i believe it was even on oprah when he first talked about it there Mm -hmm. wasn't a lot Mm -hmm. of emotion in that so yeah if you say feel good certainly what Livestrong has done has raised a lot of money for a very important cause but you know if you separate out that cause from the man i'm not sure that you know you'd want to buy a beer for lance armstrong i think cahal kelly said that in the global mail today that you know you'd want to buy a beer for lance armstrong and sit down and listen to him but it doesn't mean you necessarily want to be his buddy Last thing before I let you go, because we're running long here. Uh, if Lance Armstrong was warm and fuzzy and cuddly and came across as very remorseful and basically did it a lot more like Mark McGuire, who somehow has now found his way back into baseball and everybody seems to have just shrugged their shoulders at this point. Okay, I know what you did, but we're okay with that. If Lance Armstrong was a warm, fuzzy guy, would this whole thing be a completely different discussion? Contrition and good media relations can go a long way in modern society. That when I mean, you take a look at Alex Rodriguez now and and his status and that's a great example perception and how his perception has sort of changed. Like it wasn't that long ago where people were looking into, wait a second, this guy's a landowner in South Florida, and you know what are the what's the state of the properties he's holding, and that's to say nothing of the way he you know treated both the game and the integrity of the game and all of that stuff. And, and now look at him. So I think contrition. 
and good community relations could have gone a very long way to changing the way that we relate with Lance Armstrong today. That is Sean Fitzgerald. Uh, He works for The Athletic. You can find him there. Sean, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this tonight. Thank you very much. Talk down the road. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic for sure. You can watch this documentary, by the way. It's on, uh, part two is going to be on Sunday or Monday. I guess it's Monday going to be put up on TSN here. You can watch it on TSN. If you missed the first part, I think you can probably still find it on there somewhere. They'll replay it. Uh, But really, really interesting. One of the great debates, if you want to have it with somebody. $500 million. You cannot underplay that. I don't know how much money Terry Fox has raised for cancer. And I don't think it's fair to throw Terry Fox's name in with Lance Armstrong. These are two people that are not the same people. But it's $500 million, isn't it? Just it's a whack of money that has been raised for cancer research. And so if getting to that amount required somebody to cheat, do the ends justify the means? Or do you say, I just can't wrap my head around the fact that you did so many things so wrong, so against the rules that I just, even though you'd raise some money, I just still can't bring myself to think good things or to think that it was worth it. You decide. And you want to know something? I'm sure that your opinion on this may well be affected by whether or not you've got someone in your close family or friends or circle who have had cancer, who may you find out, oh, you know what? There was some treatment or something that was the result of the money that came from this. If that's the case, I'm sure you say, I don't care what he did. I don't care what he did. He raised $500 million and that had a benefit. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.